0: Hello and welcome to our podcast, Gurus at Dawn. My name is Elisa, and I'm here with my co-host, Ren. Hello. And today, the title of our episode is A Deconstruction of Reconstruction. So we're going to be going into the period of time directly following the bloodiest war we have fought in U.S. history.
1: Just like we talked about with the Civil War, Reconstruction is often painted in a very false light. Lots of people were taught that Reconstruction was a misfire completely. It is often depicted as a time of ultimate chaos and disorder. So Reconstruction, a term that so many of us know, but only vaguely. Let's break it down. Reconstruction directly follows the war and takes place between the years 1865 to 1877. Now, Reconstruction is gonna serve two main purposes. One, Rejoining the Union together, and two, introducing the recently freed slave population into their new place as citizens.
0: Coming as a shock to no one who has been keeping up with our podcast, these two goals are not going to be reached in tandem. More poignantly, they're going to act as a front to one another. How can the white supremacy-ridden South enter back into a Union that threatens their entire culture of racism while the Union is actively giving rights to those who they had been dependent on oppressing? And how can the newly freed black people truly be free when they are not welcomed as such and have to fight off dehumanization around every corner they turn? And how can they climb up the social and economic ladder when people have been stealing their rungs for generations?
1: And the interesting thing about Reconstruction, while many people have heard that it led to violence and so much racial unrest, what we're actually going to see during that time is something a little different than that. But starting off, we're going to get President Johnson, who took over after Lincoln. Now, nobody is going to like this guy. First of all, he was Southern himself and took a ton of his anger out on the Southern states who had seceded. See, while Lincoln had a humble and accepting approach to the South, most likely truly wanting the South to join back into the Union as if they had never left, Johnson is not going to keep that same energy. He instead takes the stance that they had little to no right to secede and should low-key be punished for doing so. And second of all, and most disappointingly, he didn't even dislike the South for the right reasons because this dude was super racist. And I don't mean Lincoln's divisive, quiet racism. No, this guy thinks the worst of the worst about black people. He even actually appoints all white governments and tries to keep black people from holding office. Now, listen, nobody is going to be okay with Johnson pretty much at all. They want him the heck out of office big time. He's the first president in American history to have his veto overridden in Congress when he tries to veto the Civil Rights Act of 1866, claiming that equal rights for black people somehow indicated taking rights away from white people. Another thing to be aware of is that Congress in the House are overwhelmingly Republican politicians because they had refused to accept Johnson's stupid all-white initiative, and so the amount of Democrats to Republicans still hadn't evened out. And the few Democrats that were there are not going to be his fans, to say the least. So I don't think anyone is shocked when this guy becomes the first president ever to be impeached. But let's leave behind the white guys in politics and talk about how things are faring for the black population in the South. First of all, we touched on this briefly before, but very quickly after the war is over, white southerners try to make a new form of slavery that isn't very different from plantation slavery,
0: sharecropping. Sharecropping will likely receive its own podcast at some point because of its many layers, but to sum it up in its entirety, sharecropping was when white landowners would house black workers in often very poor living conditions and have them work a portion of their land by providing all the supplies they needed to do do so. And
1: they would then give the black workers a small salary for that work. And by small, We mean really freaking small. Like sometimes they were as low as 3%, which is literally nothing. And it's pretty obvious why they do this. They would pay them enough for it to be classified as paid work. And remember, this is before strict minimum wage laws. So they could give them like a penny for a week's worth of work and get away with saying that they were paid. But they would never allow them to make enough in order to become self-sufficient and therefore would always be stuck working and living on the white landowner's land. You know, like slavery. But something worth noting is that what we see in politics at this time is actually a good amount of unapologetic radical Republicans wanting to see the ideal of equality reached. And that's not the only motivation, of course. In fact, Black men were only given the right to vote because of the election of President Grant, you know, Mr. Unconditional Surrender, in 1868. While he wins the presidency, the Republicans decide he didn't win easy enough. So to get them more secured majority victories, they make it legal for black men to vote. But anyway, the election of 1868 beckons in radical reconstruction. One notable guy who was the coolest and purest of all was definitely my boy Thaddeus Stevens. This guy knows what's up. I hope to do more of an in-depth explanation of him at some point, But to stay on topic, he's going to be the most radical Republican and will take the stance that many Southern landowners have more land than they need and have it under false pretenses by reaping the rewards of other people carrying out the actual work. And because of this, he wanted to see the federal government take away a portion of their land and give it to black people who had been working the land for years and deserve to be the ones collecting profits from it. I would say that he was a man before his time, but the truth is he was in the exact right time where he was needed most. It's just too bad that more people didn't follow his advice. Anyway, because of this large Republican majority, a lot of progressive federal laws are passed in order to tamper down various racist crap people were trying to get away with. And
0: this is often where we see people point to the Civil War being about states' rights again, because you can see this string of strong federal laws after the war. But while it's true to some degree that the federal government does strengthen and states' rights start to weaken, the only real states' rights we see being taken away are the ones that allow for overt racism. And so, yet again, those who take the stance that states' rights were lost because of the Civil War, they are talking about states' rights to be racist or to reconstruct slavery.
1: Yeah, definitely. And today we're actually not going to devote the entire time with a ton of history and overwhelm you with a lot of new information information at once because we're also going to do a lot of social commentary in this episode. So we will not go into a ton of detail about Reconstruction in general because we are still going to be focusing on the memory of the Civil War in the next few weeks. But one more interesting thing that comes from Reconstruction and more pointedly radical Reconstruction that you need for context is that there was an awesome wave of empowerment in the Black community that took place. Remember, the South was flush with a large Black population, particularly in the Black Belt. And of course, the areas where their numbers were highest were the areas that they had faced the most oppression. So they are beyond eager to make some political noise once they are given the opportunity to. We see something truly hope bringing, not just black people voting, but them doing so with a passion. This is a group of people, many of whom who had been in this country their whole life. And at this point, most of their parents or even their parents' parents had been in this country for quite some time as slave trade had stopped years ago at this point. So of course, They are more than capable of not just functioning in society, but thriving in it when given room to do so, which came as a shock to so many individuals who had held such strong prejudices against them. And there's a documentary, if you're a fan of those, by a historian named Henry Louis Gates Jr. called Reconstruction, America After the Civil War. Gates feels that Reconstruction in its history is one of the most misconstrued chapters of American history. Another thing Gates does well is shed light on how people tend to forget what presence Black representation had during the years of Reconstruction. Hiram Rebels is actually the first Black man to be voted into Congress in 1870. He was born in Mississippi as a free man, and he had also served in the Union forces during the Civil War. He's going to be sworn in as a senator for Mississippi, which, if you remember, just a few years ago, that's the same job Jefferson Davis had held, who served as the president of the Confederacy. How crazy is that? And he's not going to be alone for long. A famous printing company named Carriers and Ives released a lithograph of Revels as well as six other black members of the House of Representatives. They are all Southern, and only two of them, including rebels, had been free before the war. So, literally, they went from slaves to congressmen. And they're all Republicans, as they wanted to stay loyal to the party that had freed them. We also see the first black governor named PBS Pinchback, who becomes governor of Louisiana in 1872, and he even goes on to serve in the Senate as well. During the time of Reconstruction, about 2,000 black people served in office, most all of them Republicans, and most all of them Southern, which leads to the South being Dominated politically by a Republican majority.
0: And it's obvious why this is going to be a problem. They're not just serving in public offices, but they're doing it well, and they're educated and brilliant and capable. Everything the South feared most from black people. Furthermore, as Rin said, they will be representing areas that had been the most oppressive before, and they're going to do so in a manner that does not directly cater to the interest of the elite Democrats who had grown accustomed to being the ultimate powers so many angry white people are going to feel as if they aren't being represented in politics. After all, Wasn't a feeling of little to no representation the reason why they had seceded to begin with?
1: And let's take a hot second to break that down, because you know we love doing that. They are mad because they feel underrepresented, but what is really going on is freedom of speech and voting. That's what they were mad at, because the Southern voice was 100% being represented in Congress. These black representatives won fair and square. They were put in by those who got out and voted, and yet they say there is no representation, when in actuality, for the first time ever, the South was truly being represented. There were about 4 million black people in the South. So their problem was not that the South lost their voice. It was that they had finally gained one. But of course, the people who are mad are the Southern white population, like Elisa said, and they're gonna get very violent towards the black population. The Ku Klux Klan is formed. And as most of us know, its main function was to try and reaffirm white supremacy into the Southern states after slavery had officially ended. And of course, the Klan is also responsible for the popularization of the fake Confederate flag, i.e. the red flag with blue crosses, people say represents the Confederacy, but literally wasn't even the Confederate official flag it was just a battle flag which so many people say represents their heritage and that's so funny because like isn't the purpose of heritage to know your history but it doesn't seem like you know your history very well when you go around sporting the wrong flag but whatever anyway so the kkk starts popping up but of course the federal government and the northern troops still in the south during reconstruction are going to try and tamper out the presence of the kkk for the most part again we see this clash Black people are
0: being empowered and given a voice in Congress. They're even being protected to a certain degree by federal laws, as well as northern troops who helped to keep them safe while voting. And that part of Reconstruction is thriving. While adversely, the white Southern men do not stop whining about a lack of representation and inability to police their population and keep the peace as they see fit. Which we know what they mean by that is that they're really angry that they're not allowed to murder Black people for basically existing. And you would think, logically, it's clear which side needs to change. The culture and mindset of the South must reconstruct itself in a manner that allows more room for Black rights the white South should adapt to the new order of things and give up their deeply flawed
1: societal norms. And yet, this is very much the opposite of what happens. Yeah, that is big time not what goes down. In fact, you know what ends Reconstruction? We say this a lot that white unity took precedence over all else, but this event is really just gonna put a big old nail right in the coffin of any racial healing or progress. Because in the election of 1876, neither presidential candidate is going to receive enough votes for a winner to be announced. And guess what? A radical Republican named Rutherford B. Hayes, who, side note, was an abolitionist during the Civil War, is going to be put into office. But he only wins because the South agrees to back him only if the Northern troops pull out of the South. They're like, all right, you can have your guy in office but we wanna be able to oppress black people again. And we can do that if you just look the other way and pretend you don't see anything. And that's exactly what happens. The troops are pulled out of the South in 1877 after Hayes is sworn in and the North turns a blind eye to the incoming era of Jim Crow laws because protecting black people no longer served their political interests.
0: This also sets the tone for years to come in politics, and it's even prevalent today. What happened here is that progressives compromised, and instead of continuing on the path of change, they stepped back because it was argued it was too much too soon. But when they gave an inch, the South took a mile, and what little whispers of hope the Black community had been building was completely snuffed out almost overnight— Deep systemic oppression began to take root again, but this time in laws that were coded with words in a way that made them go unimpeded by the federal laws meant to protect black citizens and their rights. And for some, oppression reached heights they had never reached before, once again engulfing the South in a thriving elitist world upheld by white supremacy. And that is what we still see today. The progressive side always compromises. And of course, they often do so because that is meant to be a cornerstone of American politics, compromising in a two party system. But what that leads to is a constant feeling of taking one step forward and 100 steps back. Because while progressives come to compromise, those who fear change refuse any real middle ground. And so they never allow for any. And unfortunately,
1: it typically prevails so freaking true, but that's what really went down in Reconstruction. The only disorder we see is not coming from Black people being integrated in society as citizens, but instead from the racist South unwilling to adapt. And instead of pounding in the corner like normal spoiled children, they took that rage out through violence with extreme prejudice. But I think the best time to start looking at how the narrative starts to shift about the Civil War and Reconstruction would be around the time the film Birth of a Nation came out in 1915. A good few decades after Reconstruction. Let's just go over briefly what the film The Birth of a Nation is so that you never have to go through the torture of personally watching it. Friends, this movie makes me physically ill and I am not alone on that. But unfortunately, you really gotta know about it enough to understand the cultural impact. So, the film follows a southern family, the Camerons, who, before the Civil War, owned slaves and were very wealthy. It's so gross, because they really make this family look like they are the bee's freaking knees. They depict them as having happy slaves, which Ew! But also, what's even more upsetting about this is that this is the only time you will see black people happy, but also well-liked by white people in the film, is when they're slaves on this plantation. It very much indicates that the only place black people fit into the country is as slaves being owned by perfect godlike slave owners. It also follows, though a bit less centrally, than the Camerons, a northern family named the Stonemans. They're also a very well-to-do family. When these families first meet, the young men of each family struggle to get along right away because of how so very different they are. And the reason
0: Wren says this so sarcastically is because they are both quite similar for all intents and purposes. They are both wealthy, white families who have a good amount of societal influences in their respective hometowns. Quite literally, the only way the film depicts that they are meant to be so different from one another is because the young southern men tease the young northern men for wearing top hats and having clothes that
1: seem foreign to them. But after the initial meeting, these two families get along swimmingly, and it's clear that there are some romances or whatever happening between them. Then it goes into the civil war and it shows the horrible violence that took place, including the ridiculous trope of one of the young Cameron boys and one of the young Stoneman boys running into each other on the battlefield and eventually dying side by side. And then we see that brother against brother crap. Yeah, yeah, whatever. But also, they make the Confederates such heroes throughout the war, even rescuing the Stoneman women at some point. But let's skip ahead to the part where they go over reconstruction. First of all, Keep in mind, much of this movie points to it having the ideology known as the lost cause. And this is something that we're going to discuss a lot, but chances are you've already heard of it, or if you haven't heard of this specific term before, you've 100% met someone or heard of somebody who holds this ideology. It's pretty self-explanatory, but basically this term, lost cause, is what many people subscribe to regarding the Civil War. It has a couple basic ideas attached to it. For one, this ideology preaches that the South was just and moral in its reasons for fighting the Civil War. And yes, this very much includes justification for slavery being a necessary evil. While in later years, it will be less involved with the idea of slavery being the main focus and it more being about states' rights, it still absolutely advocates that slavery was needed to build such a flush economy, and the South had done no wrong in protecting the institution of slavery. It's also big on the Southern way of life. And remember, we've mentioned before, that term, Southern Way of Life, is code for the need for white supremacy in the context of slavery. They also feel that the only reason the South lost was because the North basically cheated. The North was morally corrupt and only sought to defeat the South through aimless Northern aggression because they were jealous of the South's glorious way of life and righteous cause. And the South had been superior in every way. The Lost Cause praises the crap out of the Southern leaders in the war. They are super big on how the Southern leaders were the greatest men to live, like, ever. It's so funny because they deny that it's about slavery, but let's lay out their main platforms. It's literally slavery, coded terms for slavery, more slavery and glorifying those who fought for, wait for it, slavery. But anyway, the Lost Cause is pretty layered. That's just the basics of it. But usually, that mentality is also very dismissive of Lincoln, as well as the North in general. That being said, what's interesting about The Birth of a Nation is that it has all
0: the signs of the Lost Cause, except for the distaste for the North. It was clear that the North was not as glorified as the South in the film, But it most certainly gave more room for the validity of the North as a whole. It says that Lincoln was the South's saving grace as only he, with all his wisdom, would be wonderful enough to accept them back as if they had never left. When Lincoln is assassinated, it is done so in a light that reveals the whole nation was struck by the tragedy of the loss of a beloved leader which is not conducive to the more accurate feelings of the assassination. Though many Southerners did not celebrate his death, at the same time, they definitely were not struck with grief over it as many of them had harbored resentment towards Lincoln and what he represented politically to the Southern cause. And this is interesting because what it does is illustrate that the birth of a nation was not angry with the war itself or that the Confederacy rejoined the Union quite the opposite. It seems rather patriotic at times and has symbols of the greatness of the unity among the North and South, and that is further made clear with the romances between the two living Cameron brothers and the Stoneman sisters, representing a literal marriage of the two places. But rather, its main grievance lies solely with the integration of Black people into society.
1: And that is very much represented within the film, because as icky as you think it sounds now, it gets so much worse. I haven't mentioned this yet, but while the youngest generation of the Stonemans are portrayed as the good guys, guess who isn't? Their father. The father of the Stoneman family is a congressman and an abolitionist. He is totally straight-up evil in the film. Congressman Stoneman, for no apparent reason to be truthful with you, just wants to see the white race destroyed. Like, it doesn't even give this dude any motive it's just basically like ah black men should take over ah and it doesn't represent the abolitionist cause very well at all all abolitionists wanted was equality not to oppress the white race but we can't be super surprised because like people do that today oppressed people will say hey let's make sure everyone has equal opportunity and then the main group in power is like ah are you trying to take away our rights and then the oppressed group is like no Just trying to make sure that we all have rights. And then the group in power is like, OMG, you're trying to take away our rights. We should oppress you harder. But yeah, so of course, they portray something similar to that in the film with people who wanted equality for black people. But the ultimate bad guy is actually Congressman Stoneman's pupil, Silas Lynch, who is a mulatto man interested in politics. And what another big ew for so many reasons. They're implying
0: so many disturbing things with this. First of all, that having black people in politics can only lead to doom for the white race, but more particularly, white supremacy. Another gross thing is that it's implying that Silas Lynch needs a teacher-like relationship with a white man in order to succeed. And is only good enough for such mentorship due to his white heritage, which plays into the white man's burden, as well as the idea that white men are to act as some unquestionable all-knowing father-like figure to the black man. And quite possibly the worst aspect is that it suggests that Lynch finds his success only because he is mulatto, and that it is his white heritage that allows him to be smart enough to be in politics.
1: Another part about this is that mixed people are consistently portrayed as divisive and manipulative, not just in this film, but in general, as if they are every bad part about the stereotypes of each race, intelligent enough like the white man, but morally bankrupt and with pure evil intent, like they viewed the black men to have, which this problematic depiction really further instills the notion that nothing good comes from the mixing of races. But yeah, so a mulatto character is the main villain. And so the storyline continues into reconstruction and portrays that in a terrible light, of course. One thing that's super ridiculous is how the film depicts the black senators who had been elected following the Civil War. As we said, these men had been well-educated and more than aware of how to participate in politics. Yet in the film, they are shown to be without all manners, unruly and loud, chaotic and stupid.
0: And this is so insulting to the black men who were elected because they had conducted themselves in such a proper manner. If you'll remember that lithograph we spoke about earlier... They had made such leaps and bounds for views on the character of the black man. They were drawn in the likeness of their true features and in elite clothing, which Henry Gates has also mentioned, was a revolutionary occurrence in itself as it was one of the first times that black people had not been illustrated with monkey-like qualities. And that was a caricature that had caused so much hurt and is still present in the black image in media today. The scene with black men in Congress was also portrayed as comedic, further entrenching the idea that black people, even in a setting like politics, were to be seen as nothing but a joke and were not to be taken seriously.
1: And another thing. In the film, there's a short scene that suggests black people had tried to keep white people from voting, and that's the reason why black people were voted into office, which seemed laughable to me when I first saw it, because we know how much violence and threats black people are going to receive while voting, particularly during the Jim Crow era. So it's ridiculous to think that the roles might have ever been switched at some point. Furthermore, there were attempts at protecting black people's ability to vote, which suggests even less room for black people to have a chance to stop white people from voting because everyone was being watched for the most part. So this is what I can say as of now. And I have researched this, I've looked through a couple databases, and I've even googled it. I cannot find anything as of now that suggests there was any truth to that fear. I will not lie to you and say that that means it never happened, but I can say with confidence as of now, it holds no truth to my knowledge. The reason why I even bring this up is how much white fear this film holds. Another thing that happens in the film is that the youngest Cameron daughter dies. This occurs when she is being chased by a black man named Gus who had been romantically pursuing her. And to be truthful with you, this character was portrayed by a white man wearing blackface because we don't see black people in entertainment during this time, especially not on screen with a white woman. What happens is he chases her all the way to a tall rocky cliff and she chooses death as opposed to being caught by this man and leaps over the cliff. And first of all, wow, there are so many layers to why this is just nuts. But let's discuss this to the fullest we can. What this most clearly
0: shows is that there is a
1: great fear
0: of intermixture of the races and, more pointedly, white women with black men, which we know and have discussed before what a great fear this will be for the white man. It doesn't only depict that fear of intermixing, but it does so in a way that paints the black man as a predator as well as placing all the blame on him. They immediately depict this black character as evil and scary looking, making it seem as if white women are meant to fear the intent of black men and view them as a possible threat right away. It also is very telling because it clearly speaks to the ultimate purity of white women because it happens to a young, unmarried child who came from a respectable family.
1: I think it's pretty obvious that this is not an accurate representation of what most real-life interracial couples looked like at that time. But the thing is, this is why we bring this up and go into so much detail. Their issues with integration are not actual things that happened in real life on a large scale. Yet, this is how they depicted it and it spoke to their white audience. Because it encapsulates so much of white fear, they are scared of uncivil black senators who don't have white men's interests in mind representing them. They are scared of black people who would keep them from voting. And they are scared of black men who would steal and defile white women. And here's the thing. I think a large reason why they are so scared of all of those things is because that's exactly what white people had done with the power that they had over black people for years. Think about it. Southern white politicians never had black people's interests in mind. White people had kept black people from voting and black women had been violated and mistreated since forever by disgusting slave owners. So what they are scared of is the wrath of black people, but more specifically, they are scared of being treated the Way that they had treated black people for years. But what's really gonna solidify that this is all based on white fear is that guess who the hero of the film is? The freaking KKK. I'm not even kidding you, it's not an inference. Those are the straight up heroes of this film. And the clan is finally basically formed because of the anger that the Cameron family had, and more specifically, the oldest brother Phil has after finding his dead sister. So they form the clan to stop all these aggressive actions of black people. After the Ku Klux Klan
0: is formed, it clearly gets very difficult to watch. It
1: glorifies the
0: death and violence of black people, showing the Cameron brothers and other angry white men finding Gus and killing him quite brutally. This film is also the first time we are going to see burning crosses being used as a symbol by the Klan the director did this for visual effect and the real life clan liked it so much, they started doing this themselves. They also sport along what is now considered the confederate flag in clan hoods. They even make it seem as if it's a shame and tragedy that the north ever tried to quell or shut down the clan. It is made to seem as if the north only did so because they didn't understand how important the clan was, that they were the peacekeepers of the land, and they were needed to ensure the culture of the glory
1: south And something else too, they don't just make the KKK the ultimate heroes, they also have the still living Northern Stoneman's son join the clan as well. And it is shown to suggest that through the clan, unity was once again bestowed upon the country. And the last big quote that appears on the screen says, the former enemies of the North and South are united again in common defense of their Aryan birthright. That's a direct quote. This movie carried a lot of impact For film in its wake. It was the longest film ever made at that time. It was the first movie that had a musical score to it. Not in the way that we have scores today, they just had this specific soundtrack that would play in the background at the same time as the film was running. But still, super revolutionary for its time. So, for years to come, people will praise this film because it made waves in the industry. I think that's an added layer of grossness. The fact that it was able to ingrain itself into different parts of the culture and stay rooted even longer. So you might be thinking, how on earth did people like this? Well, white people didn't just like this film, they loved it. It was a huge hit. It was viewed at the White House and President Woodrow Wilson reportedly remarked that it was like writing history with lightning. My only regret is that it is all so terribly true. And he was also noted as saying that it was one of the most historically accurate films he had ever seen. And like, bro, did you even watch the film? It speaks volumes about white fear. not just because of the movie itself, but in an even deeper manner. This film was based on a novel by a man named Thomas Dixon Jr., which was also adapted into a play, and then the film, which means people read the book, and they liked the book. They liked it so much, they made it into a play, which was enjoyed so well, they made it into a movie. And the movie did so amazing, it literally ingrained itself into society. But another thing to note is that black activists will use their voice to discredit this terribly inaccurate film. They will organize protests, and the NAACP leads an initiative to have it banned from being viewed. They had a pretty well-based fear that the film would incite more violence and unrest between the races. And it kind of did lead to just that. It's largely believed that much of the resurgence of the KKK during this period in United States history was due to the recognition and popularity of this film. It very much normalized and even glorified the horrendous methods of the KKK as well as spread vicious lies. So the NAACP and protesters had every right to try and shut this down because while this was allowed to continue being viewed because of free speech, this film led to the KKK
0: reforming. And there's a lot to be said about the fact that the people who felt empowered by this film weren't new racists. They had been racist and evil already. But that's the danger in giving such a large platform to those who are corrupt, because it's one thing to coexist in a society with evil, but it's another thing when you give that evil legitimacy by giving it representation and normalizing it on a national scale. And if it sounds like that hits too close to home in today's society, it should, because that
1: is absolutely what we are seeing today and in the highest office of the land dang speak on it elisa but with that we're gonna go ahead and head into our break ready to go get some tea we'll be back soon
0: and now a brief message from our sponsor
1: this week is brought to you by elisa's dry markers elisa's desk is
0: filled with markers that i've run dry due to overuse and expensive refills This has led to streaky art and questionable color choices. If you wish to help end Elisa's many marker mishaps, consider donating to our Ko-Fi link, which can be found on all of our social medias.
1: Elisa's dry markers. Live life in color. Alright, we're back. It's almost like we never left. (laughs) It's almost like that. So, Elisa, what kind of tea are you having? I'm having a mix of
0: oolong teas, which... I'm sure you know more about than I do,
1: (laughs) because that's about it. It's good. (laughs) Well, oolong as a class of tea in general can be very broad. It ranges in between really close to black tea and really close to green tea. So mixing different types of oolongs together can be pretty interesting. But this one in particular has some of the darkest ones, like Royal Red Robe, which is a very famous dark oolong, and it's very earthy with Kind of lighter notes from the green tea spectrum of oolongs is just really cool. So that's that's that on that. <laughs> uh, I adversely am having a white tea by Mudan, which I'm having a bag tea version because. It can be quite expensive (laughs) to buy in loose leaf. But the thing about white tea is that it's typically a little bit more floral naturally and lighter. It's so yummy. This one is literally sweet just by itself. Wow. That sounds really good. (laughs) It is really good. So who is your artist for this week, Alisa? My artist is
0: Vashti Harrison, who is a Black illustrator and author of Little Leaders, Dreamers, and Legends, which are amazing books for inspiring young children, especially young Black children. Her illustrations are seriously breathtaking. She has some animations, some paper cutouts, some collage work, and it's all stunning and whimsical. It really captures the joy and wonder of youth and nature. Definitely check her out
1: dang she sounds amazing kind of hard to follow that one up <laughs> but here i go my artist for this week is nine a 19 year old biracial artist whose main media of choice is illustration and animation i'm totally floored with how well they capture lighting and ambiance in their work definitely go check them out who's our activist this week activists Oh boy, let me tell you, our activist for this week is actually John Oliver. There's no way you've not heard of him probably, but we just love him so much. He's actually one of the ways that Elise and I first bonded when we were getting to know each other back in the good old days, because we both watched him since high school. He's honestly worth a thousand shout outs this guy does amazing journalist work he's funny and informed and uses this awesome and epically large platform he has built for himself to educate the masses which is incredible even though you've probably already heard of him think of this shout out as a reminder to check him out again we love you john keep that same energy friend hey lisa what's going on in the news bud Well, as for
0: news this week, in honor of the amazing wave of Black representation during Reconstruction, let's address the various forms of voter suppression we've been seeing. In addition to closing polling stations, particularly in Black, Indigenous, people of color neighborhoods under the guise of COVID preparedness, the protesters have been being arrested and charged with felonies, which in most states strips them of their right to vote. Florida, one of the few places where felons are allowed to vote, has now mandated that anyone with unpaid court fines cannot vote, like a polling tax and that's made worse because they're not keeping track of how much people owe so how are they supposed to see how much they owe or prove they've paid these fines also allowing the united states postal service which is the only mail carrier that guarantees mail pickup and delivery from every residence and through any weather or social catastrophe is being allowed to go bankrupt with no financial assistance which i believe is a less direct way to suppress mail-in voting and speaking of mail-in voting This administration has not been shy about its desire to limit it. And lastly, the census, which is supposed to count every person residing in this country, regardless of age or citizenship status, is under attack. The administration is trying to limit which individuals can be counted on the census, which is highly unconstitutional. And keep in mind, the census is meant to count population. It does not count voters. That's the way that the three-fifths compromise worked. Black people were certainly not citizens, but they were being counted in the census, which also controls reapportionment, which is coming up this year as well. All this to say that we have power as voters and they're scared of that. And because of that, they're doing everything in their power to suppress our voice. We have to go out and vote and make
1: ourselves heard. Oh my gosh, yes. All right, so pretty much that is the episode today. Next week, we're going to be going a little bit more forward in history and checking out what the memory of the Civil War looks like then. So, you know, get hyped for that. Yes,
0: and be sure to follow us on social media. We're active on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we would love to interact with you all and have you
1: interact with each other, so be sure to join us. And don't forget about our Ko-fi count if you're feeling um generous. All right. I think that's it. Yeah. Bye.